and welcome back to Brain Food for General Council after a bit of a break. But we're back now to bring you thoughts and inspiration to help you navigate your organisation through turbulent times. I'm Matthew McGee, a journalist here at Pinsent Masons, and I've never mentioned it before because it didn't seem relevant, but we come to you each month from a small home studio in Glasgow. Well, it's relevant now because a ring of steel has been thrown around West Central Glasgow and the planet's most powerful people are on the way here to try to save the world. COP26 will take place in Glasgow in early November and it's the biggest moment for action on the climate crisis since world leaders pledged to restrain temperature growth and fund global climate action in Paris in 2015. It's a showy set piece and something of a return to multilateral action after nearly two years of COVID, but it's also a crucial working meeting where we'll find out whether or not the ambition to keep temperatures to within one and a half degrees of pre-industrial levels is going to be achievable. So what does it all mean? How does it work? And what's the role of business here? We'll find out, guided by a climate science expert, from someone who's actually negotiated on the UK's behalf at a COP meeting, and from an expert on how businesses can begin to deal with the climate crisis. We're going to explore what the likely outcomes of COP26 are, and look at some of the detail on how these major decisions will be made with former UK minister and former COP negotiator Douglas Alexander. We'll monitor how we're doing so far with climate scientist Dr Tamsin Edwards and Michael Watson of Pinsent Masons will explore some of the challenges businesses face in taking climate action. But first, a quick primer on what COP26 is. The Conference of Parties to 1992's UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is the main vehicle for all the world's countries to agree action to tackle the climate crisis. Major breakthroughs were made in Kyoto in 1997 and Paris in 2015. The Paris Agreement committed countries to put in place policies and actions to limit temperature growth to within 2 degrees Celsius of pre-industrial levels and to aim to keep it to within 1.5 degrees. You'll hear our guests talk about NDCs, as nationally determined contributions. That's what these commitments are called and they are the currency of COP negotiations. COP meetings review the progress of these plans and Glasgow's important because it was meant to happen in 2020, five years after Paris. The Paris Agreement says countries must update their plans every five years. So after a Covid-caused one-year delay, Glasgow's is a meeting when this overhaul must happen. So where are we? How close have we come to reaching that two-degree target set at Paris? Well, I'm afraid the news isn't good. Dr Tamsin Edwards is a specialist in the modelling of climate change, measuring what the likely impact of our actions are. She also helps to write reports for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. These are the reports that governments all over the world rely on for climate intelligence. We're heading for about three degrees of warming. So that's well past uh, the Paris Agreement target of, of well below two degrees and pursuing efforts to one and a half degrees. If we take into account the the pledges that we've put in place, the NDCs of the Paris Agreement, then we start to get sort of below two and a half degrees and edging to two degrees. Clearly, we're not there yet. It's, it's getting better, but we're not there yet. Emissions are, are probably going to keep increasing for a while or, or perhaps plateau, but we need them to be sharply decreasing. It was always 
was part of the Paris Agreement that every five years under the ratchet mechanism, they call it, um, the, the, the different um, participants and countries would upgrade their you know, NDCs, their nationally determined contributions. And so that the Glasgow uh, meeting is 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 the one where, you know, the five-year mark is met. And so there's an expectation of a, an upgrading of ambition to really say, OK, we've got more ideas and more commitment to how to reduce emissions. But the simpler answer is that we have to start now. <laughs> we have to start critically now to reduce emissions because we can't wait another year or another five years because um, it, it's so sharp. I mean, just to to illustrate the, the the steepness of the decline in emissions that we need to to really limit warming to one and a half degrees during um 2020 with the with the massive reduction of course in in transport and and production of the pandemic um global co2 emissions reduced by seven percent um, instead of increasing by about one percent each year as it had been doing recently or or increasing three percent per year which it had been doing in the in the 2000s um, and that's about 2.4 billion tons of co2 that, that it declined but we need to be decreasing co2 by one or two billion tons of co2 every year this decade to be on track so sort of half to the majority of the impact on emissions that COVID had. Um, obviously, we don't want to do it the same way, but it just shows it's it's extremely large scale. In fact, the, the phrase that the IPCC report used is, um, if we don't have immediate, rapid and large scale reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, then one and a half degrees will be beyond reach. And I think that's pretty clear. It's clear then that an awful lot rests on Glasgow, on the commitments that countries will make at the conference. But COP26 is also where countries will ask why some of the $100 billion in climate funding previously promised by rich countries has not yet been paid out. Douglas Alexander is an ex-UK government minister who was one of the UK's representatives to the Copenhagen COP talks in 2009. He has a firm view of what's needed in the next couple of weeks. Thinking about Glasgow, the single most important number that we should all have in our heads is one and a half degrees. Do the collective commitments of the governments of every country in the world mean that when the scientists run the numbers, we can limit temperature rise to one and a half degrees? And actually, amidst all of the complexity, that simple equation is going to shape the future of all of us as individual citizens, all of us as companies, all of us as countries. And in that sense, that's the key goal. So I would think, Think about one and a half degrees as the test for Glasgow. And if you want to understand what's going to unlock those negotiations, retain that figure of $100 billion. Because as the delegates arrive in Glasgow, there's a fundamental trust deficit. The leaders of many of the world's poorest countries simply don't believe that if they sign up to ambitious goals, the richest countries in the world will meet the promises that they made what, many years ago in 2009. So, if you like, finance can unlock ambition in Glasgow. And that's why it's critical that governments do more and pay more in the richest parts of the world, and at the same time, make commitments that allow us credibly to keep one and a half degree temperature rise within reach. There are many insiders who are worried that one and a half degrees temperature rise is slipping out of our reach rather than moving towards us because the level of ambition that's been shown in the nationally determined contribution by each of those 197 representatives 
is not yet sufficiently ambitious for the scientists to be able to say that, yes, we've protected temperature rise to just one and a half degrees. The challenge then is a stiff one. Douglas had the bracing experience of being a delegate to a COP meeting that became notorious for its failure to achieve very much at all. So what went wrong in Copenhagen in 2009? And have we learned lessons that can help make Glasgow a success? The Copenhagen Conference of the Parties back in 2009 that I attended as part of the British ministerial delegation has become famous, or should I say infamous, for its failure rather than its success. And in contrast, in 2015 in Paris, the world came together rather than came apart in a climate negotiations. So basically it went very well in Paris, it went very badly in Copenhagen, and some lessons were learned in between. One lesson was bring world leaders together at the beginning of the summit, not at the end of the summit, Um, When they gathered in Copenhagen, the momentum had already been lost. They arrived at the beginning of the Paris conference. Do the work geopolitically to align the big players before the conference. So prior to Copenhagen, the work hadn't been done to align China, the European Union and the United States. Before Paris, we saw the alignment of China, the European Union and the United States and then rigorously managed the process of the two weeks of the conference. That was done brilliantly by Laurent Fabius, the French foreign minister in Paris, less successfully by the Danish hosts in 2009. So there are some really powerful lessons from history as we look ahead to what's going to begin in Glasgow at the beginning of November. China's President Xi Jinping will not attend, which isn't a great sign. But there are grounds for optimism. Tamsin says that as more pledges are made by countries, the ticket is counting down from the current three degrees towards two. And there's no doubt that climate is a permanent fixture near the top of the political, social and business agendas in a way that just wasn't true two years ago. Michael Watson, who advises companies on how to tackle climate issues for Pinsent Masons, has been as surprised as any of us at how quickly it has jumped up the priority lists of businesses and investors and thinks this can have a big impact. The fastest, the biggest impact has come from the intervention of investors, financial stakeholders and businesses really understanding and pushing their uh, corp, the investee companies to make these changes generally, in my view, ahead of regulation, although regulation is catching up. The interesting aspect about climate change is that 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 trend is likely to continue, i.e. enlightened self-interest will, in many respects, in most respects, keep ahead of regulation, which at times is struggling to keep up. If you're a lender to a a business uh, and your average loan life is seven years, but the average life of, the, of a significant impact of climate change on the operational viability of your business is four years. Clearly, everybody should be interested in mitigating climate change and, and, and mitigating the impact of climate change on that business. And I think that kind of enlightened self-interest I mentioned earlier is really at the heart of all of this uh, and the role of investors, lenders and the financial community in stimulating, stimulating and accelerating that change has been has been gratifying, actually, but uh, it's only the start, of course. I've been quite taken aback with the speed with which investors and financiers have demanded that projects and companies they invest in have answers to sustainability questions. 
is having a huge influence on companies' behaviour, and nobody's quite sure why it happened so quickly. Perhaps, as Covid lockdown hit, we all had more attention to give. Maybe years of campaigning finally paid off. But Douglas has a theory that some sections of the finance industry just had better data than anyone else. Well, I spoke to Christiana Figueres recently, who was the lead negotiator in the successful Paris Conference of the Parties that led to the Paris Agreement in 2015. And she, like you, singled out the finance industry as the sector of the economy that has stepped up most since Paris in 2015. Both governments and countries had every reason over the last 18 months during the horror of the pandemic to set aside concerns about climate and focus on the immediate crisis of COVID. In fact, in the financial sector, the momentum has continued to build. And that's because finance comes down to a calibration of risk as well as a calibration of opportunity. And what we've seen in the very clear message that is being sent by Mother Earth in relation to floods, unprecedented temperature rises, catastrophic natural disasters as a consequence of temperatures rising, is that if you misread the climatic risks, then you're not going to get access to capital in the future, you're not going to get insurance in the future, and you're going to have to undertake stress tests on your business to establish that you're a resilient business. And those conversations are being led by the insurance industry, by central banks, by the capital markets. So if you like, the understanding of risk that is fundamental to the capital markets is a very powerful instrument of change in the corporate sector because your access to capital in the future is going to be based not only on whether your business is resilient, but whether your business is transitioning effectively to that net zero future. And the premium, the cost of capital is simply going to be higher if when investors consider your business model, they judge that they're at risk of holding a stranded asset that's going to be left behind by the transition that's underway. Whether this really is the reason or not, it underscores the absolute centrality of data to how business must approach the climate crisis. For businesses to act, they need first to understand exactly what their climate impact is. That might sound trivial, but in fact, it's a really complex problem, as Michael Watson explains. The power of information and the amount of information about their impact on the environment is increasing all the time. But it's it's undoubtedly the case that compared to other classic performance metrics, such as profit and and other financial metrics that, that corporates are measured against, the range and variety of information that exists as to climate impact is much more varied and, and disparate. I think the last time I had a conversation, one could argue there were over 2,000 different ways of measuring impact, uh, climate impact and wider societal impact, which is a huge uh, confusion. That said, there's a lot of really useful initiatives that are really accelerating now, like the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures and other similar initiatives which are making a huge difference in in bringing together better, uh, more complete information on which boards and their stakeholders can make decisions. What they can do to do it better, a number of things. I think the first thing is to invest in the systems and processes to gather that information and to set clear and measurable targets that are are realistic. There's some great examples of the publication of clear attainable targets all aligned to the ultimate net zero challenge that have really driven great uh, great corporate behaviour. 
So transparency uh, and measurement at the heart of it, combined with a, an action plan that is clear and deliverable. So what, you might ask, should be the role of senior in-house lawyers in all this? Isn't this just a job for chief executives or for sustainability officers? Michael says it shouldn't be, and that lawyers are uniquely placed to drive change. Not only are the main public policy tools in the area likely to be regulations, which legal functions will have to grapple with, but the whole area, he says, plays to lawyers' particular skills. The climate emergency represents the greatest risk to society and to, and to business that, that we've seen in our generation and is probably the defining characteristic of our generation. The role of a lawyer, particularly in an in-house environment, is to ensure that the board of an organisation properly assesses and understands the risks that the organisation is facing. I think it's a great responsibility and a great opportunity for general counsel lawyers generally to have that level of influence uh, and, and to help their business and organisation transition. It is likely that the risks identified as a result of the science and climate change are going to emerge more quickly than one could have anticipated a few years ago rather than more slowly. And lawyers are, are good at identifying and analysing risks and their emergence. They, they're, they're not always half full people and in this scenario they may that may be the right thing to be. They are attuned with the key point about being able to put themselves in the shoes of the corporate and answer that question, if I were you, I would do the following. Douglas agrees about the role of lawyers. I think general counsel have an absolutely fundamental role in this process. And the role of the general counsel in advising boards on these issues is only going to grow in the years ahead. So firstly, I think it's important for general counsel to understand what's happening in Glasgow and its significance, both for the broader economy and for their individual business. Secondly, there's going to be a big move in Glasgow towards an approach to individual businesses doing the right thing by a combination of transparency and transition. We're going to see in the years ahead a huge growth in the transparency with which businesses need to reveal their environmental externalities, what impact their business processes, their supply chains have on the environment. And in that sense, businesses understanding how they need to be more transparent in the future is going to be a key part of the bread and butter of every general counsel's work in the future. Over the next two weeks, countries will lay out their plans and horse trade one concession for another as climate commitments rack up and scientists furiously calculate how close each new commitment gets us to that one and a half degree target. Just as importantly, poorer countries or those more exposed to climate risk will hold richer countries to account for the funding promises made six years ago in Paris and not yet acted on. But still, at the fringes, some will debate the reality of climate change. Though it really feels as though climate change denial is becoming a fringe pursuit, it's important to remember how much effort continues to go into the modelling that tells us just how bad things will get if we don't change our ways. This is Tamsin's specialism, and she explains how testing models on historical data is at the heart of it, and how all our futures could depend on analysis of fossilised pollen. Obviously, you know, we have to be able to uh, test our models with data. So you have to go back and actually simulate the historical period, say from 1850 up to today, 
Um, and and also, you know, many other periods of the past that we have got some reconstructions um, sort of indirectly of what the climate looked like as well. So things like, you know, digging up fossilised pollen from the mud at the bottom of lakes gives us an idea of what the climate was like at that time. Um, we have uh, the ice core records when we drill down into things like the ice sheets and we, we can measure not only the real um, atmospheric um, gases trapped in the bubbles, but also we can, again, indirectly look at the, the chemistry of the ice and get some idea of um, the temperature changes over the different ice age cycles of the last, you know, half a million to a million years. Um, we've got, you know, imperfect, incomplete data, of course, um, and we can and we can use that if we want as well to, to sort of um, rule out less good versions of a model or there's a huge um, amount of work done on, on exactly that. Sometimes you hear stories of things like, um, oh, you know, things are worse than the models predicted, people worrying that. Um, and of course, sometimes we've heard people say, oh, climate scientists are over-egging it and, and over-predicting over change. And actually, in general, they've been pretty bang on. You know, models are kind of too sensitive in one sphere and, and under-sensitive in, in the other, in the other poles. So it's, it, it does depend a little bit which, which thing you're looking at. Uh, but in general, they've been, they've been pretty bang on, and especially in global temperatures. What happens in Glasgow in the coming days will affect all of our futures. And US climate envoy John Kerry has called it humanity's last best chance to take serious action. Tamsin can't predict the outcome, but she knows that we're living through a critical moment in our response to possibly the biggest challenge of our generation. You know, we need to be looking for more and more countries actually upgrading their ambitions, uh, their NDCs, um, and existing countries increasing their ambition. Um, and those have to be not just uh, targets for the year 2050. They have to be uh, for 2030. They have to be maybe even um, year on year bet between now and 2030. Um, and, and every time those countries update their pledges and we look, we can see what implications that has for bringing down that, that temperature that's predicted, you know, ticking it down from 2.4 2.3 2.2 um and it and it has to be you know this year because it was always meant to be a major point you know every five years um to to have a, a big increase in ambition for the ndc's so if it's not now you know then when it has to be now because otherwise uh, it's only going to get more difficult Thank you for joining us for the latest Brain Food for General Council podcast. Remember, you can keep up to date with hour-by-hour -hour coverage of business law news by the Outlaw Reporting team at pincentmasons.com. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this or past programmes, please do rate and review them. It helps us to reach other people who might also be interested. Until next time, goodbye. Brain Food for General Counsel was produced and presented by Matthew McGee for Pinsent Masons, the purpose-led international professional services firm with law at its core.